0: This week, we dove deep on what in the world is going on in venture capital. We started off in March with a black swan memo from Sequoia on how COVID was going to fundamentally disrupt the economy. There's no question that that happened, but what's happened for startups and technology hasn't been as intuitive. The capital markets are more active than ever, technology businesses are booming, and deals are getting done at breakneck speed. This week I chatted with Nikhil basutrup former general partner at Shasta Ventures to unpack what's really going on. Nick Hill coined the term solo capitalist earlier this year, and it speaks to a really interesting dynamic in the venture landscape. In this conversation, we talked about a number of things. One, agglomerators versus specialist firms and how to chart positioning of different firms in the ecosystem. Two, price elasticity on venture deals and why different firms have different sensitivity thresholds when pricing deals. Three, what matters the most in a fundraise. And four, the inevitable rise of solo capitalists. Nikhil, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Ramin, thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: Nikhil, really excited to have you on the show today. We're gonna dive you know, pretty deeply into a bunch of topics you've been touching on lately, specifically what's going on in the landscape of venture and, and the rise of a term that I think you coined, which is solo capitalists. But before we jump into those topics, you know, tell our audience just a little bit more about your background.
1: Sure, so uh, as you said, you know, I was at Shasta Ventures for the last eight years uh, where I was an early stage Uh, technology venture capital investor, and before that, I was at Insight Partners for a couple of years. So in all, I've spent now about the last decade investing. And before that, I was an entrepreneur during college, including being on the founding team of a company called Artsy, which is an online marketplace for original art that's still going today. Uh, And before that, uh, I was in Princeton for undergrad, uh, grew up between the UK, the Bay Area, and India, Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, that, that's, that's been my, my story. And I guess the final thing to add is that I've been writing a newsletter called next big thing, uh, for the last several months. And that's bringing me a a bunch of joy in this challenging COVID time.
0: Yeah. And you're, I want to dive into the topics actually that you've been, you've been going into on, on next best, uh, next big thing. They've been, they've been really interesting. So let, let's set the stage. You know, Nikhil, with what's going on in the capital markets today. Obviously, you know, we're not over the hump on a major pandemic. Um, you know, about six months ago, uh, Sequoia wrote a Plax one memo painting a pretty dire future um, of what was to come. And interestingly, I think some of the things from that memo have panned out and some of them have actually taken quite a dramatic different turn. You know, tech businesses are at all time highs, There's tons of capital flooding the market, um, and deals, especially early stage deals, you know, I'm, I'm seeing from my vantage point are getting done you know, faster than ever. Let's set the stage by just talk a little bit more about your your perspective on the state of venture today um, and, and what's going on here.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's kind of amazing how active the capital markets are right now and particularly the, the private markets for uh, early stage and growth stage technology companies. Uh, you know, I think what we've seen since the start of the pandemic is number one, the acceleration of a number of trends that were already happening pre-pandemic, and as you know, I, you know, I think every business was already becoming a technology company, and every business was trying to figure out how to leverage technology to improve its operations, its customer experience. All of that accelerated dramatically as a result of COVID, and so you know the the sectors that have benefited the most are you know software and internet companies in the public markets and in the private markets, and so. Yeah, you know, I think the, the Black Swan memo was, as you said, right about a few things. This pandemic has been really challenging for a number of people. But for our industry, we're seeing tailwinds and I think, you know, those tailwinds will just continue once hopefully this, this pandemic is over and we're just back to normal. Um, and so ha- happy to dive into any of that further. But that's a quick, quick overview.
0: Yeah, you've, um, you've, you've segmented kind of what's going on when you think about the landscape more specifically in, in types of firms into, into a pairing, which has you know, really resonated with me. You've segmented them into you know, two broader buckets, um, agglomerators and specialists, right? Um, mm-hmm. At a high level, just talk about the distinction between those two types of firms and then we'll, you know, we'll break into
1: you know, more detail on, on the way you're thinking about it. Yeah, so specifically in in venture capital and in our industry, what I've observed over the last several years is a bifurcation of the industry into these two groups, as you described, the agglomerators and the specialists. And I wrote uh, a piece on Next Big Thing about this trend and segmenting firms in this way. And so, you know, the agglomerators are firms that are focused in multiple sectors and at multiple stages. So they invest in you know, consumer and enterprise technology companies—they invest at the early stage and at the growth stage. The specialists are firms that are specialized either by stage or by sector, or in some cases by both. And so, examples of firms in each of these buckets: uh, agglomerator firms include firms like Sequoia Capital and Andreessen Horowitz. Sector specialist firms include firms like First Round at the seed stage, benchmark at the series A and B stages. Uh, sector firms uh, you know, by, by sector include firms like Ribbit Capital and FinTech, Emergence Capital and SaaS. And then there are some firms, as I described earlier, that are both specialists by sector and by stage.
0: So let's start with the agglomerators. What are the characteristics you wrote in your piece and you know, some of the high level characteristics in which you'd bind these firms together or the commonalities between these firms? Talk about the characteristics of these types of firms.
1: Yeah, if you look at, you know, Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia as example firms, uh, example agglomerative firms. You know, both these firms have billion-dollar-plus funds. They have early-stage funds as well as growth funds. They have funds that are focused on specific geographies. In the case of Sequoia, like. Sequoia China and, and its India fund as well. In the case of Andreessen Horowitz, there are sector focused funds such as their crypto fund and their bio fund. And so all of these are, are you know, different dynamics of agglomerators. And you know they, th- there's probably call it 25 of these types of firms now in the venture capital industry uh, you know, some people f- refer to them as multi-stage or multi-sector or both. Some people refer to them as, um, you know, the platform firms. I came up with the, the name uh, agglomerators to describe them.
0: And for the agglomerators, talk a little bit more about <clears throat> how they became agglomerators. So it, it's an interesting, you know, your piece is interesting, especially the, the segmentation of where these firms sit, because um, you know, every one of these firms, a lot of these agglomerator firms um, certainly didn't start out as multi-stage or multi-sector firms. Right.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, Andrews and Horowitz first fund, I think just over a decade ago was a three hundred million dollar fund. Sequoia had a very small first fund many decades ago. But, you know, both firms have earned the license to become agglomerators over time as a result of their performance as a result of their ability to raise more and more capital. They've had the vision to grow their teams and expand to these different asset classes. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's it's a combination of their own drive and ambition uh, with results leading to the ability to, to raise more and more capital from LPs. And finally, I think it's the LPs, the limited partners Uh, who have enabled these agglomerators to exist. You know, they've believed that uh, firms can expand to these other, uh, you know, sort of categories of investing and be successful in that expansion. The brands can extend to different geographies or different sectors or different stages. And, you know, the, the amount of LP capital Uh, that wants to go into sort of a select group of firms is part of what's enabled these firms to grow into agglomerators.
0: And one of the interesting things that I think about a lot is, you know, one of my favorite books is this book called Cooptition, right? Which is basically this idea on game theory of, you know, how cooperative can you be and how competitive can you be in in markets in which um, there's, you know, different characteristics of your business and, and you need to take on both pieces. One of the characteristics you mentioned of agglomerators I found interesting is is your belief or thought process that there's zero-sum firms. Talk a little bit more about that perspective and and kind of illustrate, Nikhil, for us, in in what sense are these firms zero-sum and and why you believe that to be the case?
1: Yeah. Well, fundamentally, when a firm grows in fund size, it it requires more returns, more dollars returned to generate the same you know, multiple as when the fund was smaller, right? And so if you sort of back into the math around how to generate those returns, those returns are a product of having the highest ownership possible in the most number of companies that become really big, very simply put. And so, you know, as firms have scaled, the battle for ownership has also scaled. And so what you see is the desire of firms in the agglomerator, you know, bucket to take as much of the round as possible, uh, you know, in a, in a series A or series B or series C round of a company. Um, And it's more difficult for a multi-billion dollar fund to split the round and collaborate with another firm, uh, because, you know, the ownership required in a winner to, to generate the type of return uh, necessary for the firm to, to sort of fulfill its promise to its LPs is just much higher in, in, in today's environment, you know, with the characteristics of these firms. So does that make sense? Um, you know, I think we're seeing that behavior play out in the private markets, um, but a lot of this stuff is under the radar. And so I wanted to shed some light on that through this discussion.
0: Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And actually, one of the threads I want I want to unpack on that is um, and I think for this audience, it'll be especially interesting is, you know, what are those key characteristics um, in terms of differentiation of how agglomerator and specialist firms think and and specifically from the lens of, you know, return profiles that folks are 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 selling or kind of promising to their LPs, you know, one of one of the things I've seen quite a bit in early stage deals is about a is a bit of frustration from some specialist funds or smaller um, smaller asset under management firms, thinking that larger firms are coming in, and actually overvaluing the deal quite significantly. And my feedback has always been, you know, it's actually that fundamentally, if you boil this down, you know, to the unit case of what's really going on here, it's not that they're overvaluing the business necessarily, but ultimately they've sold a different product to their LPs. If you're a billion dollar fund and you've sold a two and a half x return. Over a ten-year vintage versus a you know hundred million dollar fund that's sold a four to five x return, it turns out that you have a little bit more you know price elasticity to get into to get into deals, right? And I, I think that that shades a little bit at you know some of the elements you've talked about in terms of competition between these agglomerators and specialists, which I'd love for you to shed some more light on. But to me, that speaks a little bit more to the to the tactics of you know what you're describing here conceptually as well.
1: Yeah, I think you made a really good point, and and there are several interesting things to unpack from what you just said. You know, number one, you're absolutely right that you know different firms are selling different products to limited partners as well as to founders, and yeah. uh, it's important to keep that in mind as you analyze the venture capital industry, uh, and you know the 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 exact products that they're selling lead to different behaviors in the market uh, and so as you described you know the billion dollar fund for instance could you know lead a, a ten million dollar series A for a company and you know spend therefore uh you know one percent of its fund on that investment um and they might be competing with a $200 million fund that's trying to do the exact same company in a $5 million round with a $5 million check, uh, where for that firm, it's two and a half percent of the fund, a more meaningful investment. Um, but, you know, the, the, the cost of capital for the billion dollar firm is just lower, and it can afford to spend $10 million on that investment and out-compete the smaller firm that, that can only afford to spend $5 million on that investment. And we see these these types of dynamics all the time in our industry. Now, the big question is, what do founders really want? And I I talked a little bit about this in another blog post called Founder Investor Fit, um, where I tried to hone in on, you know, ultimately all of this boils down to, does the founder want to take money from the bigger firm, from the agglomerator firm, or the specialist firm, because those different firms offer different types of help. And those different firms, you know, can lead to different signaling for follow-on rounds of financing as well. And ultimately, you know, you could argue in some cases that it would be better for a founder to take, you know, money from a specialist firm than from an agglomerated firm. And so you, you can't boil down any of these dynamics in our industry to just one or two things. There are some of a bunch of different Sort of uh, fundamentals uh, that that lead to these uh, very interesting behaviors at scale.
0: What have you been seeing, Nikhil, in in the market? And maybe we can zone in a little bit more on earlier stage. You know, on how fan, how founders are are thinking through that element of really partnering with the fund or partnering, you know, with that with a partner at the fund, right? An individual. And I'll, I'll give you just kind of an anecdote. I, I just went through a process helping. Um, One of the companies I invested in at the seed stage um, raised a $10 million A, and as we went through the fundraise, you know, a lot of what we were actually pretty critical on was thinking through, you know, we went through kind of the the A to Z of the normal Sand Hill Road institutional funds, and a couple of those folks are going to be involved, they were involved at the seed, they'll be involved at the A. But a lot of what we really focused on was actually, you know, the actual partner that would be on the board, right, their brand, their connection to the space, right, their perspectives. And and the firm was candidly secondary, right? And I wouldn't say it was secondary in entire sense because we didn't, you know, canvas a list of a thousand venture firms. So it was primary from the perspective of, you know, which pond do we even fish in? But then once we were in that pond, right, the, the brand of the firm was very secondary you know, to the actual partner itself. How have you, you know, from your experience seen that played out, you know, both on the investor side as well as just, you know, what you're seeing in the early stage markets today?
1: It's such a good point and it's something I've seen over and over again and is perhaps the single most important trend in our industry, which is that the individual matters more than the firm. And that's probably also one of the biggest threats to the set of firms that are agglomerators, right? You know, If they cannot win purely based on, you know, higher dollar amounts and higher valuations and more services, um, but, you know, but, you know, they're, they're actually, you know, forced to win based on the individual partner, that is just a different equation. And it's harder for a big firm with many partners and many investments to tell that that same story. Uh, And so, you know, I think what this has led to is number one, you know, a number of interesting, you know, dynamics for new funds getting created, which is, you know, some of them just being individual led funds, uh, you know, number of individuals spinning out of existing agglomerated and specialist platforms to launch their own, uh, you know, because they realize that they can be as successful on their own, sometimes even more successful on their own, uh, without the firm uh, name behind them.
0: You had a pretty interesting, and I want to dive into it a little bit on, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way you think about fraud readers, especially their positioning. Um, let's start with, um, you know I, I, I love reading Ben Thompson's post. He had a great post out on aggregation theory, and it kind of brings me to that same concept in our, in our conversation here, how do you think about the positioning of agglomerators? And I I can see it, you know, obviously going a couple of different directions. You can obviously see them, you know, continue on that thesis of aggregation theory and get, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think there's, um, you know, there's nuances and elements to talk through there in terms of, you know, how much capital can effectively be put to work, right? Uh, I think SoftBank really put the cart before the horse on that side, right? Um, But there's the other direction too, which is, you could see agglomerators actually retreat and become specialists, and and we've seen this with a couple of agglomerator firms. It's not as common, uh, but we've seen that journey and that track as well. How do you think about, you know, obviously it'll be different, you know, for every individual fund, they'll make their own decisions. But on a on a broader brush perspective, how do you think about uh, which direction, yeah, you continue to see agglomerators trend into or continue into?
1: Yeah, look, I think. The, the, the two firms that I named as agglomerators as examples of agglomerators before Sequoia Capital and recent Horowitz seem to be trending towards becoming super agglomerators uh, with you know ever bigger funds and ever more strategies and bigger teams as well uh, and you know they've just been on that course now for the past decade. I think it'll be hard for them to reverse and so I expect a subset of the agglomerated firms, maybe it's 10 of them, to just become bigger and bigger. And then I think there will be others, and they're likely the ones that have smaller teams today, just because it's it's harder to scale back if you've already got a huge team um, who will decide to revert to more of a specialist strategy. You know, we saw that a couple decades ago with Benchmark, which is... One of the highest quality specialists at the series a and b stages you know it used to have a europe fund an israel fund uh they are today just one one fund and one team based in the bay area Uh, you know we also saw this with climate perkins more recently where uh, they had a growth fund as well as an early stage fund and they decided to break those apart and uh, are now just an early stage focused team and so I think what will drive it is, you know, some firms will not perform well enough to warrant more and more capital. And so they'll be forced to retreat. Other firms will just realize that they don't want to be bigger and bigger. You know, that's not actually uh, what makes them happy every day and what they think will drive great returns moving forward. And so they'll choose more proactively to retreat and become specialists. And I think that those decisions are actually healthy. I mean, I look at Benchmark and Kleiner as two examples where, you know, I think 10, 20 years from now, we'll realize for both of them, I mean, we already realized for Benchmark, that that was a great decision. And I think we'll realize the same thing for Kleiner too.
0: We talked, Nikhil, a little earlier in the conversation about um, zero sum, right? In this competition, in this idea of competition and collaboration. I, I think one of the assumptions of that thesis, um, I'd love to kind of debate this a little bit with you. I, I think one of the assumptions of that thesis, in respect, is there's a limited set of companies that generate venture grade returns on an annual basis, and and this is a pretty age old, you know, premise that that folks have kind of gone back and forth on in the industry, right? Which is whether you think, you know, there's um, with as much capital as available and the reduced cost of starting companies, um, does this premise continue to hold true. And and anecdotally, from what I'm seeing in the early stages, it actually feels like we're undergoing more of kind of a subset of an expansion opportunity at the pre-seed and seed stage with more companies getting off the ground, you know, than previously would have been possible, either because of, you know, cost structures or availability of capital. How do you think about, you know, kind of the expansion of the pie versus, I think sometimes the zero-sum concept also gets mirrored in, you know, with this underlying assumption or premise that, you know, there's X number of venture fundable companies, um, you know, Y number of them will get funded and, you know, Z percentage of them will generate, you know, the outsized returns for the industry.
1: Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff in what you just said that I want to unpack a little bit. First is, do I believe that there are going to be more great technology companies built over the next 10 years than in the prior 10? That we're going to see an expansion in the number of big outcomes, absolutely. Do I think that those outcomes are getting bigger uh, than ever before? Absolutely. I mean, you just look at some of the recent, you know, public companies such as Zoom and and Snowflake um, and others. To you just have to look at a few of those to see that wow, these businesses cannot just be billion dollar companies or ten billion dollar companies but now a hundred billion dollar plus companies and those returns can just be absolutely astronomical uh, you know for funds that are mostly a billion dollars and less in, in size for instance if you if you own ten percent of a company that becomes a hundred billion dollar company that's a ten billion dollar return I mean that can that can one company can actually return a super agglomerators fund um, if, if you have one company that looks like that. Uh, so I do think that both more outcomes than, than ever before and those outcomes being bigger than ever before are true. I still believe that there's a power law in our industry where a certain subset, a smaller subset of you know, the overall um, venture market will generate the disproportionate uh, amount of return for our industry. And then the final thing I believe is that there still is very little little capital in the private markets relative to many other asset classes. I mean, it's a small, small fraction compared to the public markets. It's a small fraction in venture capital compared to buyout and and overall private equity. And so in some ways, I'm I'm voting with my career on all of these things. but I I do absolutely believe in that.
0: I think it always amazes people when you talk about the state of venture and, you know, kind of in a, even in a pre-soft bank world. In a pre-soft bank world, it was like 50 billion was all of total venture capital. And it, it just surprises. It often surprises folks when you think of, you know, in, you have institutional PE firms, right, that manage that amount of assets in your management. Right. And it's that's that's compared to an entire sector. Uh, ostensibly of what's fueling in, in innovation and in technology companies. Um, you have a you have a you have a term that you've coined and it, it fits really nicely into kind of this evolution of this agglomerator and uh, specialist framework. and it's a it's a term called solo capitalist. Um, you wrote about it in in next big thing um, and and I really liked the article. It really resonated with me. I want you to set the stage. We'll dive in a bit, you know, on this concept. But I want to say, I want you to set the stage with, you know, what is a solo capitalist to you and give some context to the phenomena and you know why it's actually this this concept or, or so is unfolding now.
1: Yeah, so um, I did define this term solo capitalist uh, back in July, and um, it's pretty cool to see a lot of people start to use that phrase since uh, I defined it pretty specifically, which is. An individual investor who has raised a fund 50 million or above, uh, the entire firm is just them. Uh, they are, you know, leading rounds not just at the seed stage, but at the Series A and and sometimes even leading later stage rounds. And I see this as actually a real evolution from the super angels of a decade ago you know, this class of investor, individual sole GP funds, such as that of Chris Saka, you know, his fund Lowercase, Steve Anderson, his fund Baseline, Michael Deering his fund Harrison Metal. I actually view that set as an incredible set of investors, but a different class to today's solo capitalists, because those those investors weren't leading Series A and B and C rounds. Whereas the solo capitalists of today, such as Elad Gill and Lockheed Groom and Josh Buckley and Aaron Zeev, Shanna Fisher, people I actually didn't name in the post, such as Meenal Hassan, Adi Lerner, Zach Coleus are, are leading these big rounds. <laughs> so uh, I thought it was an, an important thing to discuss. And uh, I'm glad that it resonated with folks because it's a very real trend and um, and it is, you know, its own fascinating form of, of specialist firm.
0: Talk about, um, you know, you've spent the bulk of your career at a revered institutional firm. Juxtapose some of the challenges and the opportunities, you know, being a solo capitalist versus being at an established firm.
1: Sure. So at an established firm, you, know, you have a bunch of resources at your disposal and you really have to focus just on investing. Whereas when you're building a firm, whether as a solo capitalist or, or sole GP or, or in another you know, format with the partnership, there's a bunch of stuff outside of investing that you have to figure out. You have to figure out fundraising, you have to figure out back office operations, fund administration, um, You know, doing every aspect of building a firm, uh, is a lot more than, than just investing. So the benefit of being an established firm is to just get to focus on on investing, on finding new companies, on making investment decisions, on winning the right to invest in those companies and helping those companies. Um, But the benefit of being a solo capitalist is, you know, you get to control everything and there could even be an advantage for you in winning the right to invest against an established firm. And it's back to what we were discussing earlier, which is, increasingly with founders gravitating towards individuals as partners, as board members uh, versus the brand of the firm, you know, the the purest manifestation of that in some ways is this trend of of solo capitalists where the entire firm is just the individual. And the other benefit that, that you have as a solo capitalist, a huge benefit versus a firm is just the speed at which you can make the investment decision when you have just yourself to convince you know there, there's no internal selling that you need to do to the rest of your partners uh, you know you can make a decision if you want in you know in a few minutes on the spot to uh, to lead around in the company and so that's the type of thing that that can lead to real benefits for solo capitalists and and what makes them a really interesting phenomenon
0: when a solo capitalist, you know, let's take a solo capitalist that's successful, right? For example, I'm curious from a conceptual perspective: Do you think that there's a natural asymptote? And I, I think that gets to kind of the underlying question of: Do you believe if a solo capitalist model um, can inf- infinitely scale, or there's some kind of, you know, there's there's some horizontal asymptote or so in which they can't cross? And and I ask that question kind of from two respects. One is, um, You know, well before kind of you coined the term and and a lot more folks are doing it candidly now, you know, you mentioned Chris Socker, I mean, he invested a billion dollars into Twitter, right? Um, Just this last year, Lee Fixel raised over a billion dollar fund addition capital and is is effectively a solo capitalist. Um, Do you think that there is a natural asymptote or you think the model, you know, can can scale um, relatively infinitely?
1: Well, yeah, look, I think it sort of depends on each of these individuals and how much capacity they have to uh, to manage all of their different investment activities. But I think for a, a sort of special, unique group of, of these folks, you can see them scaling to quite a large degree, and a bunch of them are going to take a run at being able to do that. I mean, just look at even the public markets today and someone like Chamath Paliapatiya, who uh, has already, you know, launched several SPACs. I think he he has a plan to do more than 25 of these. And he kind of is the solo capitalist of the public markets right now, or, you know, the IPO industry through SPACs. And uh, you know, I think that there are some people around him working on those opportunities and each SPAC has a board, but Chamath is really figuring the stuff out on his own and he's investing a lot of his own capital in each of these uh, vehicles as well. And so, I, I, you know, my my head tells me that there should be an asymptote that, you know, these people are not gonna be able to manage hundreds of investments just on their own at scale. And I think a lot of them will you know, continue as themselves as the sort of, uh, you know, the entire brand, but have a bunch of people working with them in the background to manage all the of their activities. Um, but look, there there are people who are figuring out how to make, make the scaling happen.
0: There's a very heated conversation right now in terms of, and Bill Gurley has been leading the charge on it, um, you know, in favor of of actually going public via alternative methods, then the traditional IPO process, whether, you know, it's been a direct listing. SPAC is obviously, um, you know, a recent phenomenon, at least in technology. It's, it's been a phenomenon on Wall Street for quite a bit of time. Um, how, how do you think of, of you know, when you think of the public markets, you think of, you know, how many companies are public now versus, let's say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's about half the amount. How do you think about SPACs as a, as a mechanism for high growth um, technology companies to, you know, foray into the public markets? What's your perspective?
1: Yeah, I'll caveat this by saying I'm I'm not an expert on SPACs, but what I do find is really interesting is you know the bar for going public has been so high for the last ten years. You know, most of the time that I've been a venture investor, there was sort of unwritten rules around. Well, you had to get to hundreds of millions in in revenue and sort of be uh, you know X level of growth and. Um, X level of, you know, uh, profitability, losses decreasing, for instance, uh, to warrant being a public company. But that isn't how the public markets have worked, uh, you know, before the last sort of decade or two. And I think we sort of became a lot more conservative as an industry around going public. Uh, So what I'm excited about with SPACs and uh, I think SPACs in particular, you know, the, the bar for, for a direct listing is still high, but what I do find exciting about all these different options is that the bar can be lowered to, to going public and that public market investors can profit from you know, significant gains after a company goes public, which over the last 10 years have mostly accrued to private investors. Um, and so that's what I get really interested in, and the other thing is, if you look at some of the companies, for instance, that Chamath is spacking, like Open Door, and today he announced uh, Clover Health as an acquisition. You know, these are companies that, if they went through the traditional process, I don't know how successful they would be in their IPO because they may be just difficult to explain uh, yep. to public market investors. Whereas with the SPAC, that company is just convincing one person, in this case Chamath, that they are worthy of going public and boom, they get to be a public company and they get to have long-term you know, public investors who are committed to being there and to helping them for the next many years. So I'm really interested by it. I hope that we see more companies going public as a result, more liquidity for private investors, but also more upside for public investors. Overall, I think it's a really, a really healthy thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, it, I think it has a phenomenal effect on democratization. Um, and it also uh, it, it also has an efficiency element to it, which is, you know, a method of going public through really convincing kind of one cohort of investor versus, you know, a protracted, call it, you know, six, nine, 12-month roadshow um, in explaining the business to a whole set of folks. Um, Nikhil, as we round out the conversation, I'm, I'm curious, in, you've had this kind of undercurrent of theme in in the pieces you've written on Next Big Thing, both about, you know, purely about venture capital, as well as, you know, some of the undertones and different types of business models you've you've unpacked for folks. When you think of the future of venture capital, and you know, this is a very broad uh, question, but I'll let you kind of drive it in the way that comes to mind. When you think of the future of venture capital, what are the biggest questions that come to your mind? And, and offer up a couple of hypotheses, you know, for how you see the, some of those questions playing out.
1: Yeah, that is a big question, but let me let me take a stab at it. <laughs> I think fundamentally, the thing we haven't talked about is that our business, the venture capital business is a very human business. You know, there are uh, you know, humans who are venture investors who get the chance to invest in these incredible humans who are founders of businesses who are putting their whole lives on the line to make their dreams a reality. And so much of the calculus of early stage investing is about, you know, analyzing a person and a group of people as founders and their ability to, 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 you know, build something really big. And so one of the things that is sort of the undercurrent to a lot of the changes in which are in many cases rapid in our industry is a lot of different human components. And um, as I think about the future, I think a lot about uh, how the industry needs to become more diverse, needs to become more inclusive, uh, needs to become more transparent. And I, I think the venture firms of the future and the venture investors who will be successful over the next 20 years are the ones who are thinking about a lot of those human dynamics. And, uh, and that's something that, again, not a lot of people talk about, uh, especially publicly, but uh, there, it's definitely something that's in the, the private conversation, and it should be on the minds of every participant in our industry. I like,
0: I like that framing a lot, Nikhil. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. You know, it's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's really been interesting to see the way that you unpack, you know, not only industries and business models, but really provide A perspective on what's going on in in the landscape of venture capital and it's a it's a really pivotal and interesting time you know to see that to see a shift in the industry so really appreciated having you on thanks so much again for making the time and um you know really enjoyed it thanks so much for having me